This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale. Um, this is a podcast where we talk about environmental justice, justice for animals, justice for the climate, um, and think about ways to move forward out of our present crisis. Um, and today I'm very excited to share that conversation with Patrice Jones. She is a co-founder of Vine Sanctuary, a refuge for farmed animals. Um, and she's also written a lot on uh, issues related to animals and other forms of injustice. Um, but today we're mainly talking not so much about her writing, but just her, her work at Vine Sanctuary and what type of place it is. Um, as regular listeners know, I've been doing a four-part series on animal agency over the last month or two, and this is part four. Um, so, and I think it's a really nice way to wrap up a lot of the ideas we've discussed um, over the last few weeks about animal creativity and animal politically expressing themselves, um, and really look at a place in Vine Sanctuary where uh, these ideas get put into action, um, where the humans involved really try to make it a place, as Patrice says, where birds can be birds, where cows can be cows, um, and where the animals in some sense have a say in running the place. Um, I'll let her explain what she means by that, um, but I think it's a very fascinating and in some ways utopian, I mean that in a good way, conversation. Um, the series on animal agency will wrap up not on the podcast itself, but in a book club at the end of June, June 27th, that's a Tuesday, over Zoom at 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific, we'll be discussing The Plague Dogs by Richard Adams. Um, you, some of you may know him as the author of Watership Down. Uh, but we'll be discussing The Plague Dogs, which is a novel about um, dogs escaping from a research lab facility. So I'm sure there will be a lot to discuss there. And for those who aren't readers, uh, there's a movie of The Plague Dogs as well that you are welcome to watch and join the conversation. Okay, I've listed all the usual ways of supporting this podcast in the episode description, as well as a link to Vine Sanctuary so you can learn more about their work and about Patrice and uh, support uh, Vine Sanctuary, if you are so inclined. Um, as always, please consider supporting this podcast as well on Patreon with a small monthly donation to keep it going. Um, without further ado, here is Patrice Jones. Hi, I'm here with Patrice Jones, uh, the co-founder of Sanctuary, which is an LGBTQ-led refuge for uh, farmed animals. Um, Patrice, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Hi, so I thought we could start by just, um, you know, describing life at Vine Sanctuary, if you could tell us about um, what that is. Well, Vine Sanctuary is an LGBTQ-led farmed animal sanctuary located in Springfield, Vermont, uh, which is on the traditional homelands of the Abenaki people, as well as the um, traditional homelands of indigenous animals such as uh, beavers and wild turkeys. About uh, half of our land is reserved as wildlife refuge, and then the other half is occupied by our multi-species community which includes upwards of 500 uh, farmed animals, including chickens and cows and goats and sheep, turkeys, ducks, geese, emus, alpacas, one pig, 
and I'm sure I've forgotten somebody, uh, as well as a considerably smaller number of humans uh, who are working to take care of these uh, survivors of the multifaceted war on animals waged by our species. Non-human sanctuary residents include survivors of animal agriculture, including the beef and poultry and egg industries and dairy industry, but also survivors of animal testing, of hunting, of various uses of animals in entertainment, such as petting zoos. Animals come to the sanctuary through various means. Some have liberated themselves by escaping or fighting back. Some have been seized by authorities due to quite extreme cruelty and neglect. Uh, farmed animal welfare laws are extremely minimal. So the level of suffering uh, that is going on uh, before authorities actually seize animals from farmers is truly extreme. Um, and then others are surrendered. Uh, we, we also were the first sanctuary to figure out how to rehabilitate roosters used in cockfighting. So a number of the birds here uh, were seized by authorities in the course of, of, of busting up uh, cockfighting rings or breeders of birds for cockfighting. And again, some animals just uh, free themselves and find their way to us. Yeah, so how you said you were the the co-founder how long have you um how long has vine been going on and how did you decide to start vine it all started 22 23 years ago in the part of the country where factory farming of chickens was invented and perfected that's called the delmarva peninsula it's got parts of delaware maryland and virginia and uh, it's a small peninsula where the poultry industry kills and cuts up more than a million birds every day. We, co-founder Miriam Jones and I, uh, moved to that part of the country uh, without realizing uh, that we would be surrounded uh, by factory farms. But we were, in fact, we were on a quite small property, literally surrounded by factory farms. And shortly after moving there, literally on our way to the bank to start our local bank account, we encountered a chicken in a ditch who had jumped or fallen from a truck headed for a slaughterhouse. So we brought her home and she turned out to be a he and then needed some companions so we started uh we let the local humane society know that anybody else who found birds could bring them to us then i had the opportunity to actually go into a factory farm to rescue any birds who uh the chicken catchers had left behind and 23 years later here we are <laughs> what is a, a typical day for you on the sanctuary look like 
Well, it's probably more interesting to hear what the typical day at the sanctuary is like overall rather than my day. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, because my day uh, is often caught up uh, at this point in things like recording a podcast or, <laughs> or doing fundraising, uh, which is not interesting at all. But uh, a typical day at the sanctuary starts at sunrise and ends at sunset. We have two adjoining properties one of which we call the valley and the other one is up a steep driveway and we call that the hill the valley includes several coops with mostly chickens a few ducks but all birds the hill has two different areas one is called the commons and that is where goats and sheep and some cows needing special care, elders, juveniles, people recovering from injuries, newcomers, live along with lots and lots more birds. So all of the mammals and a lot of the birds are up the hill. And then if we go even further high up into the wooded, rocky, mountainous terrain of the back pasture, that is where the hardy herd of cows live. Uh, and they have their own barn. There are uh, anywhere, uh, on average, there are about 40 cows uh, here at the sanctuary, most of them in the back pasture. So a morning starts at sunrise. We need at least two people uh, to handle morning chores, one in the valley and one up the hill. With the morning begins with all of the coops being opened. And I always wish that animal advocates were there because then they would never, ever, 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 ever be tempted to call themselves the voice of the voiceless <laughs> because it is very loud. And mm -hmm. if you are even a little bit late, in opening the doors you will hear it you will hear the complaining even after you open uh folks will be mooing to each other talking to each other quacking to each other talking to each other about you and why you're moving so slowly and why aren't you filling the water troughs more quickly and you would be quite clear that you are nobody's uh voice because folks have their own voices uh so yes that is the thing that people are doing then we are filling up the water bowls and the water troughs and filling up the feed bowls and making sure that everybody who's on a special diet gets their special diet anybody who needs meds gets their meds and uh everybody spreads out to forage in the pastures and the yards and the fields and the woods and the humans get busy cleaning barns and coops. And then uh, it's a little bit different depending on the season. In the summer, you're making sure that everybody's cool enough and that the water stays fresh and full. In the winter, you're making sure everybody stays warm enough and breaking up ice. And then the day goes on. And then eventually it becomes evening or sunset, at which point uh, the birds go back into their coops and folks get their evening meals if they get special meals. 
meds if they get meds, and we close all the doors, and everybody goes to sleep. I'm glad you talked about the sound, because I remember the first time I visited a, a sanctuary for that was mostly, um, you know, either formerly farmed birds or, uh, you know, former quote-unquote pets or backyard chickens uh, who had found their way to the sanctuary, um, which was Hen Harbor in California. The first time I went, absolutely the first thing I noticed was the noise, that they're all just clucking and honking and um yeah, you know, I've I've heard animal advocates as well describe themselves as the voice for the voiceless. There's I think there's an organization called that. And I <laughs> you're right that it's it's a mistake to think about other animals as being voiceless. Yeah, and it's not just a physiological mistake. I mean I, I say this jokingly, uh, but if you're thinking of yourself as the voice of the voiceless, as opposed to the voice of the unheard as opposed to an amplifier of the voices of those who aren't being listened to adequately, then that opens the door for a fair amount of hubris and heroism and a feeling like you are the hero, you are the center, you are the one. And that, mm -hmm. sense, that still centers the human, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but our perspective from a sanctuary, and it's very clearly a sanctuary perspective, engendered by uh, living in a multi-species community with people of all species uh, who are, are adequately respected. Our perspective is that the true leaders of the animal liberation movement must be animals. And we humans should be thinking of ourselves as allies and thinking really hard about how to uh, figure out what those for whom we are advocating would like us to do rather than allowing our own preferences or philosophies or wishes to feel like this kind of a person or that kind of a person guide what we do, really attend closely uh, to what animals are saying about what they want and do our best to figure out what they might like us to do. Yeah, so two episodes ago, I, I spoke with philosopher Ava Mayer, Mm -hmm. about the concept of interspecies democracy and looking at other animals as political agents, as having mm -hmm. language. Um, and she actually, in our interview, she talked about Vine uh, as a place where experiments and, and looking at what it's like to, um, you know, let other animals guide their own lives looks like. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you, any examples come to mind of ways in which the your practices at the sanctuary have been changed or transformed due to attending to the other animals, um, you know, needs and desires? On the one hand, I can think of a hundred thousand examples. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, I'm scrambling for even one, but while I'm, while I'm thinking about that in the back of my mind, let, let me disclose that from the inception of what is now Vine Sanctuary and what was originally called the Eastern Shore Chicken Sanctuary, from the beginning, uh, we have been asking these questions. Uh, so uh, we decided uh, after rescuing the first few birds and deciding to go ahead and, and make it an official sanctuary 
that our motto would be let birds be birds. Mm. And our idea was that we were as likely as anybody else to really not think about chickens as birds, but to think of them as some uh, domesticated entity, uh, uh, juveniles under the with a, a need for human uh, control. But that's that's the um, that's the propaganda of the people who exploit chickens, right? Right. Uh, but that they are birds. Okay. Well, what do birds want? That was our first question. What do birds want and what do birds like these birds want? So we learned about uh, the wild jungle fowl in South Asia, who are the ancestors, the still wild living ancestors of all domesticated chickens. We learned uh, that with a few exceptions, modern uh, so-called domesticated chickens are genetically indistinguishable from wild jungle fowl. They're the same species. Uh, and, and wild jungle fowl live freely in the forest, conducting their own affairs just fine. Uh, we learned that chickens become feral more easily than any domesticated animal other than cats, uh, and that flocks of feral chickens live in uh, Hawaii, in wow. Florida, in Canada. I've, I've seen a flock in Hawaii, uh, mostly descendants of escapees from cockfighting. And so we learned that if the habitat is okay uh, and the climate is okay, now notice that where, where the feral chickens are, are living uh, freely uh, is in warmer climates uh, than even we were in Maryland and certainly warmer than here in Vermont. So of course, they would need some, they would need support. Uh, they need housing and food and all of that. But our idea was that our job was to allow them to, insofar as possible, rewild themselves. Mm -hmm. Our job was to create a habitat that was as close as possible to the habitat that their bodies evolved for, that they probably wanted in some deep embodied way. Trees, underbrush, these are forest birds, right? People imagine chickens in, um, I don't know, yards, empty yards that are either dirt or grass and they don't have trees. Well, that's really scary for a chicken. And then they're constantly under, um, uh, they, they don't have anywhere to hide from aerial predators, they're forest birds. Uh, so so we, we decided that we would set up our habitat as, 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 as insofar as possible, as close to the habitat as they would like, that if they wanted, if any bird or birds wanted to be friends with us, we would be super happy about that and just be so eager to be friends, but that we would not make any effort to in any way tame or, or further domesticate, um, acclimate to humans, anybody, uh, that we would understand that their most important relationships would be with each other. And that our job was to set up the situation in which they could self-actualize themselves. And so that's what we tried to do. Uh, and then uh, we relocated up here to Vermont in 2009 uh, for various reasons, but one of them was so that we could uh, have more land and begin taking in survivors of dairying, which as feminists, uh, we see uh, as, as, a, as, as, as reflective of both sexism and speciesism, just like cockfighting. 
And so when we started taking in cows, then we were like, okay, so then the, that motto there has got to be let cows be cows. What do they want? Oh, well, they're the, they are also the descendants of forest creatures. So we better make sure they have woods. And as others came, we did the same. So uh, this is a long answer to your, how have things changed in response to what animals have told you? But, but because I wanted you to be clear that from the beginning, that that's been our, that's been our way to try and figure out uh, what animals might want. Now, once folks moved in, uh, then they often make very clear uh, that they don't like this, or they do like that, or you thought that this this area would be one that everybody would like, and they're like, no, nah, we're not interested in that, but this one over here that you're blocking us from, we actually would like to be over there. Uh, so um, people will repurpose, you know, we'll build something that we think is going to have one purpose, and then uh, and maybe it does have that purpose for a while, but then others will take it over. Right now we have uh, a structure that we had built for a pig that is now, in fact, the goat nap area. <laughs> so it's a constant. There's so many, every little, every day, there what we're doing is guided by what the folks in our care are telling us they want right mm -hmm. because saving somebody's life doesn't mean that you get to be the boss of them right um so uh, uh we are aware of the wider world of course in the eyes of the wider world the animals in our care are our property but that doesn't mean we have to treat them like property mm -hmm. uh, there are times when we know things that they don't know right so we know that the area beyond a particular fence is not considered our property we know that if cows were to breach the fence and go over there uh, they might be vulnerable to hunters um, and they don't know that so we have knowledge they don't know um and and it's something and if they knew then they would stay away from that danger zone right mm -hmm. so so we certainly do consider ourselves um both not just allowed but required when we have information they don't have um to exercise what might feel like authority um uh to protect health or welfare either of, 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 of an animal themselves or of some other animal, right? Uh, but unless it is necessary to preserve health or safety, we step back yeah. at all times. And so like every single day, every little decision is guided by paying attention. Yeah, no, that's such an incredible answer because I think it gets at, <laughs> I don't know, this is maybe going to sound silly at first, but the most recent episode, I, I was talking to my friend about Jurassic Park um, and kind of how the whole problem is that they think they can create this park where the animals will behave a certain way. And in fact, animals 
behave how they want to behave and have their own, you know, make their own decisions that you aren't yours to have predecided for them. Um, and if we think about how, you know, there is a fence, like you said, you know, because of the conditions of the outside world, there is, you know, it, it may be in one lens is still a condition of captivity, even at Vine Sanctuary. Absolutely. We're, we're at the same time captors and caregivers. And we have to be aware of that, even though it's really, really hard to think of yourself in that way. Mm. You have to, because just deciding to be vegan or deciding to start a sanctuary, that doesn't magically make you not speciesist. That doesn't magically take away all of the deeply embedded presumptions of human supremacy uh, that are there for, from your upbringing. So unless you take great care, you will try to boss everybody. You will presume that you know better. Um, we're, we're guided by um, two uh, principles from, from disability rights as well. Um, and, and that's called the presumption of competency and the privilege of risk. Are you familiar with those? I'm not. So those are two really big, important um, concepts in disability rights. And uh, the presumption of competence comes in where um, uh, so often uh, uh, helpful people, so people who think of themselves as helpful, able people who think of themselves as helpful, they might start to push somebody's wheelchair without even asking them. Um, or might presume that a person with a particular cognitive disability or a particular psychiatric disability um, can't make their own decisions um, about particular things. Uh, and so the presumption of competence uh, uh, says simply this, that you know, if this is an adult, then you presume that they are competent uh, to make their own decisions unless you have evidence otherwise. But the mm -hmm. presumption is competence. In both ableism and speciesism, the, the presumption tends to be incompetence. Right. It's like you've got to prove to me that you're competent. Mm -hmm. But within disability rights, we say, nah, you should presume that the person is competent unless you've got evidence otherwise. Same thing with us. Uh, if this is an adult animal who might might well be my elder in terms of their relative age, uh, uh, I'm not I'm not I'm going to presume that they are competent to make their own decisions unless I have reason to know that they're not because I have knowledge they don't have, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, I might know that uh, that cough they have is likely to be a sign of pneumonia and that penicillin will help it. And so in that instance, no, they're not competent to know whether or not they could, should take penicillin because they don't even know that penicillin exists. Um, but in terms of do they prefer this pasture or that pasture? What time do they want to eat? Where do they want to go during the day? Who do they want to have be their friends? Those are all decisions that I, I shouldn't have a say in. Right. They don't get to decide for me who my friends are going to be or where I go or don't go. So presumption of competence. And then privilege of risk is um, trickier. Uh, one of the trickiest things in a sanctuary is that you are constantly making uh, ethical decisions and practical decisions uh, that have no clear right or wrong answer. Uh, and, and in which you're often balancing competing um, goods or competing harms. 
And, um, and one of those is uh, safety versus self-determination, right? Mm -hmm. Right, like, so we wouldn't have that fence. If we went all the way in the self-determination, then there wouldn't be the fence and the person could wander uh, into the shooting range. Right. Uh, 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 safety, uh, if we went in the other direction, is is what you know farmers will often claim, right? They'll keep they'll keep cows in a barn twenty four seven and say, well, um, you know, uh, otherwise they might uh, trip over rocks and get hurt, yeah. right? I mean, we have rocky terrain; people can you know they can trip. So, mm -hmm. you know, like the safety side would be lock everybody up uh, all the time. Uh, Obviously, you're going to choose somewhere in between there, but exactly where and upon what reason uh, and uh, uh, it, within disability rights, there is this idea that um, part of being an adult is having the privilege to choose to do things that are somewhat risky mm -hmm. and not as long as you're um, uh, competent to make that decision. Uh, then nobody has the right to stop you from it. Yeah, I think, you know, I think if I try to describe a, a farmed animal sanctuary to a friend who, even a, a vegetarian friend or, you know, a friend who likes animals, but who maybe hasn't been to one, you know, as, as a place where animals from species who are typically farmed are able to kind of wander around on their own and live their own lives, you know, the, it might not on the surface sound like, you know, how is that different from, keeping my backyard hen for their eggs or whatever. How is that different from, I don't know, like a, a humane egg farm or whatever, quote unquote. But the the ethos is so radically different. And then what it makes possible is so different because I think what we aren't trained to consider is that there actually is a like range of possibilities for what a chicken life looks like. And I, I your description here is like stirring a like a utopian instinct in me of, you know, the way that lives could go that is so radically different from how they go now. And I think, you know, even when I have been to sanctuaries with groups of other vegans and animal rights activists, you know, I, I'm not saying this to <laughs> throw them under the bus, but I, I've seen, you know, people kind of, we all want, right, the photo op with the chicken. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And can be, you know a little aggressive in trying to, you know, hold the chicken to get the photo when clearly right. they don't want it. And this is people who, you know, I think have thought more about this um, than the typical person, but you're, but just that we really haven't, it takes time to go far enough to like really respect this other animal as an autonomous being. And, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it, it's deeply ingrained. Uh, and so uh, uh, we don't have as many visitors as most sanctuaries do. And um, we're always uh, really careful uh, and uh, prepare people. And, uh, and so we haven't had many incidents like that, but I hear stories um, about vegans visiting other sanctuaries. I hear stories. Uh, about the photo ops, uh, et cetera. And, uh, and that's just, but I know within my own heart, I still have to, you know, it's 20 some mm -hmm. years and I'm still periodically catching myself just presuming that because I'm human, I know better or, 
um, not really adequately uh, uh, attending. Uh, so it's a process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, people do it with their dogs too. With oh, yeah, um, you know, they I think have genuine love in their heart for their dogs, and they, you know. <laughs> hug them when they are trying to get away or, you know, whatever else. And well, uh, um, well, and I mean, and this is where, you know, things are, are um, murky because heaven knows humans will also hug or worse humans. They claim to love who are clearly showing mm -hmm. that they don't want to be hugged or um, fondled or whatever the case may be. Um, and so, you know, here again, we have another, kind of an intersection around um, really uh, respecting uh, other people's bodily autonomy mm -hmm. um, and not allowing our own desires uh, to, uh, to take precedence. Yeah, no, I, I think the respect portion of it is so important. Um, you know, you can love a chicken as you might love a toy is a different kind of love than as a whole autonomous being who may or may not want to hang out with you. Right. Um, so what, uh, gosh, there's so many different directions I could go based on everything you've said, but insofar as right, you, you have a fence now because there is, you know, there's risk outside of it. What, what, like in, you know, in your future dreams, what uh allows you to or like what what is the future of what a sanctuary could be you know what 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 do you wish you had the space for the resources for the legal permission for the safety for to to kind of become even less captor and more caretaker i um i think we're a long ways away from not having a need for sanctuaries mm -hmm. um Certainly, I would, I would like, um, I would like there to be land enough uh, and space enough for currently captive kinds of animals to rewild themselves and um, uh, care for themselves without uh, human um, intervention, right? Um, mm -hmm. So. Uh, just as I, I've seen uh, the wild uh, chickens in Hawaii, where uh, I w saw, I was hiking in a forest and saw a whole flock who, you know, the forest is big enough and they're escapees and they can just live their lives free. Uh, and uh, the cows in our back pasture, if we had lots more land, they wouldn't need us to give them hay all the time because mm -hmm. they could, they would have enough forage. Um, so land enough for, for animals uh, who, uh, to, to rewild themselves uh, would certainly be something that I would love. But I, I think I'm focused, I tend to be focused more on the nearer term. That makes sense. Yeah, there's certainly enough in hand to deal with. I'm, yeah, you know, a, a lot of the animal rights world thinks a lot about um, ideas that might be lumped in with, like, effective altruism, and kind of the idea is 
is trying to do the most amount of good per dollar in a quantifiable way. Um, and, you know, I remember a few years ago, I was writing a story for a class about sanctuaries and I talked with someone from, I think it was animal charity evaluators or some group, um, who told me that he did not necessarily think of sanctuaries as an effective form of animal advocacy because, you know, it could take a lot of money to care for a single animal. But I think there are also sort of some pretty valid critiques uh, and pushbacks against this type of thinking. And so, you know, for you, like, how do you think about, and it may or may not have anything to do with what that other guy told me, but how do you think about, like, what makes this worthwhile for you? What makes, you know, co-founding, you know, fundraising for doing podcasts about a sanctuary uh, worthwhile? Well, the first thing I need to say um, is that um, animal charity evaluators did great harm to many sanctuaries um, and has not yet taken responsibility for doing so, much less thought about what reparations might look like. Um, virtually every sanctuary, including us, are struggling because of effective altruism. There's a new book that's called uh, The Good It Promises, The Harm It Does, which is edited by Lori Gruen, Alice Clary, and Carol J. Adams, and which includes essays from philosophers, from activists, including three of us from sanctuaries, uh, including former effective altruists. It's a really important book. Uh, and I encourage anyone uh, who has any thoughts at all about effective altruism, positive or negative, to read that book and be open to the ideas in it, uh, which uh, collectively uh, are pretty devastating. Mm -hmm. So um, I am um, certainly capable of listing all of the ways that's that uh, sanctuaries in general and um and 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 the very unique multi-species community that is vine sanctuary um are 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 useful projects in the world each doing uh their own uh their own way of doing the work uh, here um you know we have scholars coming all the time to study how the animals are are mm -hmm. are, are, are interacting with one another but but I, I'm not, I don't want to be like, okay, so that makes it worthwhile. Yes. Because that in itself is, uh, is denigrating, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, uh, when there is a war on somebody, the very least you can do is create some safe spaces for survivors. And as far as I'm concerned, even if we didn't do anything other than that, that would be an entirely worthy thing to do. And, and to, to say otherwise is unthinkably callous, right? It's mm -hmm. like saying, um, well, you know, I mean, why, why send a fire truck to put out a fire when, well, you know, just, just let them burn and you know, put all your money into fire safety prevention? I mean, you probably can. You probably could prevent more fires by spending that money that way. 
But in a case like that, we understand. Collectively, we need to do both. Mm -hmm. Collectively, we need to do both. We all can get to choose where we're going to put our personal time and resources. But um, to go around denigrating the projects of others, trying deliberately to steer money away from animal rescue, trying deliberately to defund sanctuaries. And that's what EA has done. Don't be wrong. Mm -hmm. Trying deliberately to defund the very few refuges that exist for the survivors. That to me is very close to evil. Yeah, it, it seems to me that, you know, these animals are here, they're alive, and to not care for and create a space for them, you know, it does, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be useful to do that. It's a thing worth doing on its own because they are, you know, their own selves and just like any other self would, would deserve the same. And this idea, um, but again, I don't want to, I, I, you know, I don't want to go down, down the road of justifying it, uh, of, mm -hmm. of like saying, oh, well, we're worthwhile because of this. But I just, I do have to point out that human beings at present, first of all, have, have collectively failed to solve any of our internal problems within our species. We, we haven't solved poverty. We haven't solved war. We haven't solved hunger despite the best efforts of some of the best educated and in some cases most politically powerful people that's been going on for centuries now here we are in the midst of the climate emergency caused by humans and humans are collectively failing abysmal to solve it so this idea that like humans are the smartest and we can with our little algorithms figure out what's the best thing to do in all circumstances what's the most cost effective thing to do in all circumstances what's the most effective thing to do in all circumstances oh my goodness the hubris mm -hmm. the cluelessness the absolute failure to see the facts of the matter so there's lots of other species none of which have 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 uh created climate change many of which have figured out how to live with each other equitably internally and across species mm -hmm. what could we learn from them isn't it smart to maybe have some places where they can be themselves where we might be able to learn from them mm -hmm. yeah no i couldn't agree more i i wanted to ask um maybe slightly tangentially but maybe not um that sort of vine is an acronym that uh, i understand stands for two different things um, and I'm curious if, if you could talk about them and, and why, why they're important. Sure. Sure. Vine, uh, stands for veganism is the next evolution, but it also stands for veganism is not enough. And, uh, by veganism is the next evolution. What we mean is that whatever your primary focus is whether that be animals, whether that be environment, whether that be social justice, because of all of the intersecting connections among various forms of oppression, veganism is something you need to do. It's, it's a next step for you. Uh, 
whatever, if you're someone who's hoping for the world uh, to become more equitable, peaceful, sustainable, then veganism is going to be the next evolution for you. Uh, and we do see veganism as a praxis rather than a obtained identity, uh, something that's always ongoing. Uh, but it's not enough any more than um, it would be enough uh, to say, well, uh, I'm uh, going to refrain from battering women, and that makes me a feminist. Uh, so uh, we have to do other things. Veganism is a baseline. Um, and for many of us, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly easy ask. Uh, and part of what we need to do is make sure, uh, make it true uh, that, it be, that it becomes easier um, for everybody. There are, of course, uh, many people right now for whom uh, uh, access to food is sharply circumscribed. Uh, and so one of the things we need to do uh, is make veganism easy for everybody uh, by, by collaborating with the food justice movement and the environmental justice movement, et cetera. But for those of us who can, um, then veganism is, is the next step or a next step, but not enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And really, we wouldn't necessarily have centered the name on veganism, except that we really liked Vine as an acronym. <laughs> Because we love vines. We love how vines make connections. We love how vines can pull down human-built walls. Uh, we love how vines can feed humans and other animals. We just love everything about vines. I don't blame you. Um, yeah, maybe one more. You know, you mentioned earlier um, how you look at dairy as a feminist issue. Um, and you, know, you mentioned feminism a couple times and just for, for those who haven't thought about it yet, uh, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can, you can draw that connection out for listeners. Ooh, for dairy in particular. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, 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 the linkages between sexism and speciesism are, are, are very, very deep and go back, you know, to the days, uh, which are still true in some places where, where husbands were the owners of not only land and animals, but also women and children. Um, and, um, you know, if we, if, we, if we think a little too, if we think at all closely about things like, um, I don't know, grooms uh, mm -hmm. putting rings on brides, uh, then we really see how um, deep it goes. But let's let's go away from that and uh, just say, look, for dairy, I understand a lot of people don't realize it. I know a lot of people who are vegetarian because they don't want to kill animals, but they still consume dairy because uh, they have these ideas uh, based on the advertising that's been served to them, not only in the media, but in the public schools here in the United States, uh, that, uh, that dairy is harmless and that cows are happy about it. Um, but in fact, cows are mammals just like we are. They only produce milk after they've given birth and they only produce it so long as the child is suckling and then they naturally stop producing milk. So what does the dairy industry do? Well, the dairy industry first forcibly impregnates 
uh, cows as soon as they are as soon as they are sexually mature. Um, and then uh, after the calf is born, the mother cow is allowed to be with the calf uh, only long enough to, for her milk to start flowing, typically less than 24 hours. And then the calf is taken away. The mother protests often, uh, uh, moans afterwards, sinks into depression afterwards. Uh, when the calf is taken away, if the calf is male, the calf uh, may be just shot um, or may be sold uh, to a veal uh, farm. Uh, if the calf is female, she'll be kept separate from her mother uh, and raised on a milk substitute until she reaches the age of sexual maturity where either she'll be sold to another farm or right on the same farm. Uh, the, 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 the process will start for her. Um, so then uh, the cows are milked typically by being hooked up to machines twice a day. Uh, the machines uh, braid their teats. Um, it's a deeply violating and often painful experience. And because it happens consistently, it's as though the calf is suckling consistently and she will continue to produce milk for up to a year or more uh, because she may in, in she would nurse a calf for that long. Uh, eventually, uh, she'll start to produce less milk, uh, in which case then she will be impregnated again. Uh, and she will um, be divested of her calf again and hooked up to the machines again. Uh, she will probably develop mastitis, uh, which is a painful inflammation. It makes the whole thing more painful. Eventually, she'll either stop being able to be made pregnant um, or, or her milk production will decline. On the big factory farms, they will just sort of automatically Cull, meaning kill, meaning send to slaughter for low-grade meat, um, uh, cows at a particular age. On the smaller scale farms, they may keep them for a long time. One, calf here, one cow here, Autumn, who only died last year, uh, came uh, to us at age 12, having uh, had nine calves taken from her at a dairy farm. Uh, mm -hmm. Our eldest cow now, Rose, had six or seven taken from her. Um, at a small-scale dairy farm over the course of about nine years. Um, yeah. it's, 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 it's a deep violation it, in, in every way. It's a sexual violation in the course of the, the impregnation. Um, it's an intimate violation, the, the milking every, 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 every day. A, a couple few times we've had cows come here right from a dairy with such bad mastitis that uh, we couldn't just let them um, uh, naturally have less milk, uh, naturally stop producing milk. What we would have to do is, is milk them out and, and then squirt antibiotics up. Um, and so I've actually had the experience of, 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 of milking out a cow by hand, knowing uh, that I was doing this to save her life from the mastitis because she needed the medicine and yet still feeling what an enormously intimate violation it was to have my hands on that part of her body squeezing it to get the milk out. It's really obscene, the entire industry. Um, and, and I know that most people still don't realize that. 
so we have a lot of work to do uh, to make the really basic facts about dairy evident. So many people still don't know. Um, and also to inculcate empathy for the cows. Empathy for the cows is what we need. Because I think if people have that empathy, um, then it's pretty hard to participate in, in something uh, that obscene. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes a, a stereotype of, of vegans can be that they are city dwellers who don't actually know what it's like on a farm. But I, I think it's striking, you know, to hear your, um, you know, your passion about this issue is coming from someone who knows cows better than spends you know your time among these other animals and and you know have been able to develop that empathy and and I think you know the contrast between the you know system of regimented exploitation that you described and your description earlier in this uh in this podcast of of trying to make a space on vine sanctuary that is truly you know multi-species and and influenced by the animal's own interests um and, and, and is, yes yeah it's a striking contrast yeah and listen i mean autumn came here after nine years at a dairy 12 years at a dairy having nine calves taken from her and while she was here she lived to be um over 20 maybe 23 21 at least and uh in her years here she adopted calves twice, calves who had been discarded from dairies and came to the sanctuary. She became a leader, a widely esteemed leader of the uh, multi-species community, respected by cows, respected by sheep and goats, respected by humans. Uh, she had her best friend, Rose, who's still with us. Uh, she had her, uh, her dignity um, and, uh, and many moments of joy and happiness. Um, and there's not uh, a way to calculate what that means. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's, it's important. Well, I'm, you know, there's so much more we could talk about, but I, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, yeah. Is there uh, anything else that, that you want to add or, or discuss? Uh, I would like to invite your listeners to visit us at vinesanctuary.org. Uh, where you can learn more about Vine, uh, where you can support the sanctuary if you like, and uh, sign up for the Vine Book Club. If you're a listener to this podcast, then you like books. Uh, you probably would like to read the books that we read at Vine Book Club, which is a virtual book club with something like 300 members around the world. Oh, wow. Not all of whom come to every meeting, mm -hmm. uh, but you never know. At our last meeting, we had act activists from not only the U.S., but the U.K., Greece, Estonia, Mexico, and India were present. Uh, so it's fascinating uh, conversations and fascinating books. So you can go to vinesanctuary.org and look for Vine Book Club. And again, think about supporting the sanctuary. I will include a link to your website in the episode description. Great. Um, so people can do that. And Patrice, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the Patreon subscribers who keep this podcast going. Thanks to everyone who likes or follows this podcast. Patrice briefly mentioned Alice Crary and Lori Gruen, uh, two of the editors of the 
new book on effective altruism she mentioned. Um, for those who don't recall or are new to the podcast, I interviewed Allison Laurie about a year ago, um, so I'm including a link to that podcast as well below in case you're curious to hear more from them. We didn't talk about effective altruism so much in that, um, but you can hear more about their other ideas. In terms of what's next for this podcast, our four-part series on animal agency is now concluded, except for, as I mentioned, the book club. If you want to join the book club, there's more information in the links below. The easiest ways to follow along are either to subscribe on Patreon or subscribe to my free weekly newsletter. And then I'll be pivoting to a new series on the trouble with car dependency um, and some of the environmental problems posed by our extreme reliance on automobiles and some of the possible ways out of this quagmire. You might think this is a bit of a left turn, so to speak, from Animal Agency, but I promise it actually will come together um, eventually, because one of the episodes I'm doing is about the impacts of road upon wildlife. And when you think about it, you know, all the roads and driving in this country are a primary means of thwarting Animal Agency. It means it's less safe for your dog to go outside. It means it's harder for mountain lions to migrate, um, it means a million things. So eventually we'll get to that um, and, you know, possible ways to reduce the negative impacts um, and help wild animals and domestic deal with cars. Um, but yeah, next next episode, in a couple of weeks, we'll be starting more big picture with the trouble with cars. And as a reminder, Patreon subscribers get to listen early to all these episodes. I've already done a couple of the interviews, um, but if you just want to wait and listen for free, I get it. Hope you're having a good day. Hi. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!